Our scripture reading this morning is going to be Mark 10, 17 through 31. Mark chapter 10, 17 through 31. Be reading as we customarily do from the English Standard Version translation. And as he was setting out on his journey, speaking, of course, of Christ, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters, or mother or father, or children or lands, for my sake and the gospels, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray. Father, we would pray for your Holy Spirit because we cannot truly understand your things, the things of the kingdom, unless we have your Spirit working with us to illuminate our minds, to open up our hearts, to not only to perceive these things which are deeply spiritual, which require a different kind of understanding, a different perspective, but also, Father, to have your Spirit complete that work in us not just understanding them, but motivating us to obey them, to live them, to to know these things as the words of everlasting life. 
And so this is what we would pray for, that your scriptures would be such a means of grace to us that we would increasingly become those who follow Jesus faithfully. And that, that we might be what he desires us to be as his people, salt and light to this world, even to this generation. This we would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want us to think about this story for a moment, just sort of picture the whole thing that's going on here. And I want, it to, I want to describe it for you as a kind of a pre-gospel message. A pre-gospel message. Because within the story itself, within the encounter that Jesus has with this rich man and the other uh, Matthew and Mark, Matthew and Luke describe him as a rich young man, uh, within this story, there is no message per se in the encounter between Jesus and this rich young man. There's no message per se that could be called good news. So in one sense, there's no gospel here. Certainly, we don't find here a, con a successful conversion story. Uh, there's no good word from Jesus who says to the rich, rich young man, oh, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. Instead, this story has a sad ending. The man turns away sorrowful. He feels worse after his encounter with Jesus than he did before. Now, in light of how Jesus deals with this man, it's interesting to consider how, uh, for a number of us, we began our Christian lives in churches and with a background that would have suggested, in this kind of a circumstance, perhaps quite a different approach to this rich young man. Uh, and then also believing that there would have been, if we had a different approach, a better outcome in terms of this kind of an encounter. Uh, for instance, my background, my training would have suggested something like this. Uh, if this man came to, to us asking how to inherit eternal life, we would have considered him to be a seeker. This man's seeking after God. We would have seen him as a prime gospel prospect. Uh, we would have taken his interest as a golden opportunity that we would need to be careful, don't mess this up. We, we would see our job as a step-by-step -step kind of an approach, giving this man the wonderful truths of God, but only as much as he could accept at that particular moment. Uh, we would have thought about, well, how much can he digest in terms of the things of God? And we would, we would, we would couch each step that we might present to him with respect to what we would tell him about God and God's truth and the gospel. We would couch each step with constant reassurances. God loves you. God loves you. God really loves you. God loves you just as you are. All God wants for you is for you to know how much better life would be for you if you were to just accept His free gift, the free gift of His Son. If you would just accept His Son into your life You'd, you would have such a better life because Jesus promised. He promised that he came to give people life more abundantly. We would want people to accept Jesus. We would want them to pray a simple prayer. We would want them to embrace the promise of an abundant life and then eternal life and the life to come. Now, along the way, of course, because there are some things that we would want to say that might be a little bit difficult, 
Along the way, we'd be careful to encourage them. Really, God loves you. God loves you just as you are. We would emphasize the church is a safe place. Christian people are safe people. We know that's not true. Christian people are safe people. Uh, And God is a safe God. Why? Because God accepts everyone just as they are. Because that's what love is. Love means acceptance. Just as you are. And so our job, our job especially would be not to offend anyone. Not to get in the way of the Holy Spirit loving this person for Jesus. Because that's what it's all about. That's what the message is all about. That's the good news. Jesus loves you just as you are. Now let's return to the story which we just read. It's not an acceptance story. You see that, don't you? It's not an acceptance story. It's not a story of how Jesus made the way easy and safe in order for this rich young man to come to God. Instead, it's a story about what is non-negotiable. It's a story which shows Jesus standing hard and fast on the issue of what it truly takes to inherit eternal life, what it takes to enter the kingdom, what it means to be his disciple. Yet, you see today, there's the greatest contrast between the modern vision of winning people to God and what this story teaches. There is a... There's a great contrast between the modern vision of what love is and what we find in this story. Because look at verse 21. It's the linchpin of the entire story. In verse 21, the key to the whole episode, we read this. Mark records that Jesus loved this man. And out of this love, Jesus tells this man the truth. He is not acceptable to God just as he is. Now, the big lesson here is enormous. We see the approach here that Jesus takes to evangelism. We can describe it this way. And we're going to see it as we work through the story. Christ and the scriptures tell us the very hard truths about the human condition the hard truths that we are not acceptable to God. We are not acceptable to God just as we are. We're told that, Christ tells us that, in order that we would face the truth of what is it we truly need in order to find a right standing with God, in order to inherit the kingdom, in order to be a disciple of Jesus, in order to be saved. Now, that's what we're going to see in the story. We're going to work through the story by looking at its three storylines to highlight how Jesus does not hold back the truth about what we truly need in order to be in a right place with God. The first part of that storyline is going to be, we can say it this way, it's going to be overestimation and underestimation. 
the second part of the storyline is going to be pinpointing the issue of acceptance with God. The point of acceptance and non-acceptance. The third part is really the epilogue, where Jesus breaks it down in a dialogue with his disciples as to what all of this means. Now, in the first part of the storyline, the encounter with this rich young man reveals what has always been true of the human condition. All human beings, but listen carefully, all human beings, but especially so-called decent human beings, will overestimate having a good standing with God and will always underestimate what God requires. Overestimation, underestimation. Now look, this man we can see has a sincere concern with respect to eternal life. But in that sincere concern for eternal life, he considers himself to be a good man. How do we know that? And why is that a good problem? Why is that a big problem? Well, the first thing we're going to see here is, is there's a huge problem when we have a faulty notion as to what is good. The rich man sees himself as a good man, and therefore he recognizes another good man, Jesus. That is why with extreme politeness and extreme deference, he approaches Jesus, falls down before him, and calls him good teacher. Now, to this man's credit, that approach to Jesus is not hostile like the approach of the Pharisees. They hated Christ. Rather, this man had a good opinion of Christ. So we can't take that away from him. But the problem is his understanding of what was good. Uh, look again at the interchange between this man and Christ. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So here's the faulty part of his understanding. By his own understanding of goodness, he failed to see that only God is good. Therefore, either Jesus is good because he's God, or Jesus isn't really good in the most important sense of goodness, and therefore neither is he. Christ presents him with an absolute either-or. Either you understand what it means to say that I'm good and recognize that I am God, or you fail to understand what it means to say that I'm good. But if I'm not good, neither can you be. Then there's a faulty basis for this man's estimation of his own goodness. Jesus recites the commandments of the law, the ones respecting our conduct and attitude toward other human beings. Here's actually where we see the source of this man's opinion of himself. Verse 20, he says, Teacher, all of these I've kept for my youth. Uh, that is why he sees himself as a good man. He's kept the law of God all of his life. That is his testimony. Now, I don't disregard uh, someone who says to me, Look, non-Christian, look, I've lived a decent life. I have met many people 
who led so-called decent lives. You have too. We often find them among Mormons. Often find them among Jehovah's Witnesses. Once in a great while, we find it among a rank atheist. <laughs> you know, but we do. Each one of those persons has his sense of why he's good. Normally, it's because they've lived upstanding moral lives. And they can say all the things they haven't done that are disruptive and dangerous to society. Okay. That's this man's testimony. This is his basis for his own sense of personal goodness. He's kept the commandments of God. Yet the message of Jesus in the story is that, that this good man lacks what will truly bring him into eternal life. He's blind to his genuinely true condition. He overestimates his standing with God. He underestimates what God actually requires. You're going to see this always in your life when you talk to decent human beings who are not believers. They will overestimate the rightness and goodness of their standing with God. They will truly underestimate what God truly requires. And so this man, he esteems himself as a decent, law-abiding Jew, but he just wants to make sure, recognizing Jesus as a good teacher, he just wants to recognize that, he just wants to make sure, is there some small matter? I've done all the big things. I've not murdered. I've not committed adultery. I've not stolen. I've not borne born false witness. And I've not defrauded anyone. I've honored my parents. Those are the big things. But is there just some small little thing that I haven't done yet that I need to make sure of that might be sort of interfering with my having everlasting life and inheriting the kingdom of God and all of that? Some small matter. Can't be big. Because if you see what's going on here, you'll recognize that this, from Jesus' perspective, this man has an enormously inflated moral self-esteem. I want to say something about self-esteem here because it's sort of pertinent to what's going on here. It's interesting what the better studies on self-esteem have to say about the matter of self-esteem which is, if you're an educator, you know that's a sacred cow, right? If you're an educator, you know that above all else, self-esteem is the golden icon of education. I want us to see that and then see how it applies to what's going on here. One of the most significant studies focusing upon self-esteem and youth behavior, both social and academic, concludes this way. High self-esteem does not prevent children from smoking, drinking, taking drugs, or engaging in early sex. If anything, high self-esteem fosters experimentation, which may increase early sexual activity or drinking. But in general, effects of self-esteem are negligible. What they mean is neg negligible with respect to superior academic performance. Then the study gives several warnings about the consequences of self-esteem being too strong. Such people, the report says, are generally blinded to how others see them, who see them more objectively. High self-esteem can lead to a higher sense of self-blindness, the study says, an inability for a person to see his own issues or his own problems or behavior that generally conflicts with other people. In other words, 
the more highly we think of ourselves, the greater our self-blindness. Nowhere is this more the the case than with a person standing before God. Whenever we overestimate our standing before God, we will conversely underestimate what God, in fact, requires. Now, the point here, going back to verse 21, what motivated Jesus to tell this man his true condition? What motivated Jesus? Jesus loving this man. Out of true love, Jesus was going to downsize this man's self-esteem because it was his trust in himself. It was his trust in his own moral performance. So we come to the second part of the story, the second storyline, where what's involved here is this, being confronted with God, with what God actually requires being confronted, pinpointing the issue of acceptance and not acceptance with God. But again, let's remember, this pinpointing of acceptance and non-acceptance that Christ does here, it's motivated out of Christ loving this man. Loving the man enough to declare to him the truth. So, Here's what Mark's story shows. Jesus identifies what this man treasures the most. That's the indirect but clear revelation of the story. Jesus is going to identify what does this man treasure the most in his life. And he does this by confronting the man by saying, there is one thing you lack. And and, and he lays it out. The issue of acceptance and non-acceptance before God hinges on this issue, rich young man. You lack one thing, Jesus says in verse 21. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But this statement from Jesus produces a very, very strong emotional response from this rich young man. In verse 22, the ESV translation says disheartened. But the word carries the actual meaning of being, being shocked and then surprised and then discouraged. Jesus has pinpointed that this man's wealth is what is not acceptable to God. That this wealth keeps this man from inheriting the kingdom. This man's wealth is his problem. But further, Jesus exposes how this wealth has actually corrupted this man's grasp of what is most important. Now, I want us to appreciate that, that this man's situation uh, from his contemporaries and even from the response of the disciples later, no one sees that this man's condition is tragic. But it is. The corruption in, involved in this man's life could have been prevented. The man's Jewish faith could have prevented his life from being corrupted by his riches if only he had paid attention to the Word of God. 
let's make this clear. Being rich in and of itself is not the issue. Riches are not in and of themselves sinful. This is not a diatribe against capitalism. Please understand that. Though it has been perverted that way, it's been interpreted that way, it's been used that way, but that's wrong. The issue that Jesus is pointing out is what this wealth had come to mean to this man. That was the problem. Now, as a good Jewish man who should have studied the Scriptures more faithfully, he would have discovered in the truth of Scriptures, he would have been warned about the power of wealth to corrupt. Now, think again about the book of Ecclesiastes. It is truly one of the most important practical and significant books in the scriptures. Remember, King Solomon is giving his testimony of, 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 of spiritually wandering in the wastelands of life, seeking meaning for life on the horizontal. So Solomon seeks meaning in life from wisdom and from power and from women and from wine and from wealth. In Ecclesiastes 5, Beginning to verse 10, Solomon says this. This is a conclusion about what wealth will do to you. He who loves money. Now notice, it's love. Love of money. Not the possessing of money. But he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. The richest man in the world of his era. Solomon. The kingdom of Solomon is estimated to have been have the greatest treasury of all the nations of the world in that day. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity, says Solomon. Now listen, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. What is Solomon saying? He's stating an important truth about wealth management. The wealthier a person becomes, the greater the risk factors concerning those circumstances which can take that wealth away, that can attack that wealth, that can consume that wealth. Solomon goes on to say, And what advantage has the owner but to see them with his eyes? That is, the man who's managing wealth begins to see all of these risk factors. He sees everything, but potentially can take this away from him. Meaning that he's going to worry about these things. He's going to stress about these things. He's going to keep focused on how he can manage and protect the wealth against these risks that are all around him. And so verse 12, Solomon says, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats much or eats little. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Solomon's conclusion. Wealth can destroy when wealth is loved first and foremost in anyone's life. Now you've heard the saying, the more you possess and own, the more your possessions own you. Right? 
That's Solomon's story. That's the warning. This rich man's wealth owned his heart. That's what Jesus could see. That's the pinpointed issue that Jesus is confronting with this man. Now, out of this, consider what Christ is saying as an accurate diagnosis of the human condition. What stands between us and God? In this story, Jesus says, look, what stood between this man and everlasting life was his wealth. And so there's no other solution. If this stands between you and God, then you've got to get rid of what stands between you and God. And that's why he's told, you've got to sell everything you have. You've got to give it all to the poor. You've got to come follow me. In other words, Jesus is saying, you've got to get rid of what is killing your soul. You've got to get rid of what is going to cast you into hell. You've got to get rid of what stands between you and God and everlasting life. That's the needful thing that he must do. There is a spiritual albatross hanging around his neck, pulling him down to everlasting destruction. His great wealth controls him. It blinds him to his lost spiritual condition because this great wealth is more important to him than it is to God, than he, than God himself is to him. And that's why the, the lesson here, it's a generalized lesson. It applies to any of us. There is no entrance into God's kingdom for any of us who would ever make something other than God to have first place in our lives. So, let's sum up the storyline thus far. What is Christ teaching? Two important truths concerning the human condition. We all have a powerful internal compulsion to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to when it comes to our moral and spiritual standing before God. We just think we're not so bad. It's also true that every fallen human being has always had something that he or she treasured more than God himself. Do you see that? It's the very nature of sin in the garden. When Satan brought two possibilities before her, the truth of God or his interpretation of the truth. When she moved to the Satan's perspective, the serpent's perspective, she then valued what supposedly the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would give her more than she valued God. It's always the way it is. Every sin is indicative of valuing something more than God in his ways. What has always held back people from being saved is they have valued what isn't God more than God. Do you see that? Do you understand that? 
Because that's Jesus' great concern. This is not a lesson about money and wealth per se. It's about everything on the horizontal plane of life that would keep us from having as our first, highest, deepest, central love. That of God himself and Christ. Now, of course, what Jesus is saying here is that without repentance, without turning away, without repenting of treasuring things more than we would treasure and love God, without turning back from that, without surrendering, without giving that up, there's no inheritance of the kingdom. Now, that leads us then to the third part of the story, the epilogue. This is a discussion now, a dialogue between Jesus and his disciples. He's discerning their response to everything that he said. He initiates the dialogue. He reflects upon his encounter with the rich young man. Verse 23, he says this. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, in verse 24, the reaction of the disciples is notable. They are amazed at his words. This is not something that they were really expecting Jesus to say. They weren't expecting to hear this. It went so much against the grain of what they were learning in our day. We, um, Stu read earlier from Luke chapter 16 that the Pharisees despised Jesus' teachings about wealth and God, mammon and God, because they loved money. And, and that, by the religious leaders of the day, that pretty much... Well, imagine. Have you not met Christians whose only Christianity has been the health and wealth and prosperity gospel. Have you? Of course. And what is everything about spiritually? It's about making the wallet fatter. It's about getting the Cadillac. It's about the next big job promotion. It's about all of these great things to aggrandize our lives. Right? So it shouldn't be so surprising to you if the Pharisees have been preaching and teaching the same stuff for now decades and decades that the disciples themselves would have been somewhat leaning in that direction. They're shocked that Jesus would say that wealth could keep you out of the kingdom because the Pharisees have been saying, hey, if you're wealthy, God has favored you. So the Pharisees are amazed. But apparently, they're not amazed enough for Jesus. So look what he says in verse 24. He repeats himself with even greater emphasis. Children. Notice he uses a diminutive. He's basically saying, children, you you need to step back and become teachable like a child here. We've got to renew how you think about all of this, children. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 24, 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Some interpreters have tried to make this less of an issue. 
they say, hey, there's a, there's, a, there's a gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle. Actually, there's no historical evidence that such a gate ever existed. That's a fictitious invention of the Middle Ages to try to make this saying of Jesus less severe. Because even in the Middle Ages, the Pope and the church were terribly, terribly, terribly rich. So what Jesus is saying here is two related things. He's saying first, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to say, how difficult it is for a rich man to be saved. Eye of a needle? It's impossible for a camel to do this. It is impossible. Now the disciples are exceedingly astonished and ask the question in verse 26. Well, who then can be saved? That's the question Christ has been waiting for. That's where all of this dialogue and conversation with the disciples had intended to lead. So, verse 27, Christ gives this most vital message with respect to the story. With man, it is impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. So, pulling all the threads of the story together. Here's the message. First, it's so typical for human beings, especially decent human beings, to overestimate their standing before God and then to underestimate what God truly requires. They believe that God's going to accept them just as they are. Full love, full acceptance. That's, that's God's job, isn't it? <laughs> to love me just as I am? Secondly, what people just don't... I mean, they're actually shocked by what God actually does require. Because it is a shocking truth. I don't care how good you are. You're not good enough. What? I got a trophy for showing up. I'm not good enough? No. This is what Jesus intends the disciples to see. Human beings cannot save themselves. There's no hope in us. There's no hope for us in us. Everything in the human heart that's not so thoroughly touched by the grace of God, everything in the human heart stands in the way of loving God. Of truly making God first. So that's the third point. Salvation is impossible except God himself do it. It takes God to do this. And that's where Jesus leaves his disciples at this point. He doesn't tell them the rest of the story. He leaves them at this point. God and God alone can save. That's why we say the story is a pre-gospel message. The whole intent is to nail down the coffin of self-righteousness and legalism and the idea that any of us might think that we are good enough to save ourselves. But it also nails down the coffin of our current postmodern perspective 
about these kinds of things that, hey, it doesn't matter what we're like. We're still acceptable to God. To make it clear that man's work, man's acceptance before God is impossible for man to accomplish. But that impossible work of salvation is God's work, God's story, God's grace, God's gospel at the highest cost, the sacrifice of his own son. So we stop here. But you know the gospel. You know the gospel of the Lord Jesus. That though he was rich, yet he became poor. So that truly through his poverty, we might become rich. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to help us to have what Christ would have us to understand today. The, uh, the danger of overestimating ourselves in this, the danger of underestimating the truth about what you, the living God, requires. To know that our salvation is hopeless if we think we can trust in whatever we might do. That salvation is open to us, trusting what you do, on behalf of those who cannot save themselves. And so we would thank you for the gospel. Thank you for this good news that God in heaven has worked salvation for us through the death and resurrection of his Son. We would trust not on ourselves, but trust in him. In Jesus' name.